0: Hello, and welcome to a very special podcast that is part of a series I am leading on diversity, equity, and inclusivity with CME Outfitters. Today's CMEO cast is entitled Health Inequities in Mental Health Care, and is supported by an educational grant from Johnson & Johnson. I'm Dr. Monica Peek, and I'm a professor of medicine and the associate director of the Chicago Center for Diabetes Translational Research. I'm also the Executive Medical Director of Community Health Innovation and the Director of Research at the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics, all at the University of Chicago Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. I'm honored to be joined today by two colleagues, Dr. Amanda Calhoun and Dr. Jessa Assam. Amanda and Jessica, welcome and please introduce yourself. Amanda, why don't you go first?
1: Thank you so much. Uh, My name is uh, Dr. Amanda Calhoun. Uh, I'm an adult and child psychiatry resident at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Child Study Center. Uh, My research focuses on the mental health effects of anti-Black racism in children, and I very much consider myself a physician activist. Excellent.
0: Jessica. Jessica.
1: Yes. Hi, I am Dr.
2: Jessica Asim. I am a clinical uh, instructor in the Yale Department of Psychiatry focused on workforce development in the social justice and health equity curriculum. I'm also a practicing community psychiatrist who works in FQAC, and I also am an organizational consultant through my company, Vision for Equity, LLC, uh, again, working on workforce development around racial equity issues.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today. I love that you both sort of define yourselves as physician advocates and use, you know, terms like social justice in your work. That is definitely um, how I describe myself also. And I think that um, many colleagues uh, sort of shy away from that term, um, but many students are not. And so it's great to see other women leaders um, embrace that because the people who are coming behind us are watching us um, and how we, move in the world and how we are finding ways to be the most impactful um, through our clinical work, through our research, through our practice, and through our advocating for social justice for those who are the most marginalized. So very excited to have you ladies here. Um, I want to remind our audience that this CMEO podcast is a continuation of our initiative to address unconscious bias, health disparities, and racial inequities. We're building a comprehensive library of educational activities addressing these very important issues, and today's activity continues this very important discussion in mental health. On this slide are just some of the titles of activities in the series with links to each of them. To view any of these programs, simply click on the activity title. If you participate in at least three of the programs in our DNI Hub, you will also be eligible to receive a digital badge, demonstrating your commitment to education on diversity, equity, and inclusivity. So let's jump in with our learning objective for today's program, which is to analyze the influence of unconscious bias, health disparities, and health inequities on mental health care. So, as we begin to address disparities in mental health, I do want to review some foundational points regarding historical racism that can help us all remember how we got here. Um, we've done previous programs that cover these topics in depth, and those programs can be found in our DI Hub. But I do want to recognize that we do uh, that we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't take a moment to recognize that we have a significant groundwater issue that we have to address. And that groundwater issue is racism. And so just to make sure that we've all sort of level set and have a a key sort of understanding of how racism can cause poor health, how it leads to health disparities amongst marginalized populations, there are several mechanisms. Um, The first two really uh, revolve around what we call structural racism. So structural racism is defined as differential access or decreased access to the goods and services um, that can promote health. Um, and a increased access to the, the negative things that are harmful to your health, ultimately. So those two things might be, for example, access to healthcare and health promoting goods and services like healthy food, you know, good schools, um, hospitals and healthcare systems. And the second might be limited access to healthy environments, things like safe and stable housing where there's um, no lead paint, decreased crime, Physical spaces like parks and recreation, clean air and water, where there's uh, we think about the the Flint uh, uh, water crisis, where there's none of that. So again, access to things that can promote your health. The third is racism itself. That just simply exposure to racism and chronic discrimination. Um, that chronic stress leads to biological changes in our bodies that can cause chronic diseases. It changes our autonomic system, our cardiovascular system, our inflammatory system, so many systems that, that can be dysregulated that increase our risk for obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, et cetera. It also causes changes in our DNA, our epigenetic changes that not only affect our bodies, but our the, the bodies and the lives of our children. And what we now know is our children's children. And then last um, we are uh, here as healthcare professionals. And it's that differential treatment within healthcare systems specifically, where we talk about implicit and explicit bias um, that has a particularly um, pernicious impact on what happens to people's medical care um, when they're really in a crisis and uh, come in vulnerable with disease and need that treated and are differentially treated and receive substandard or inferior care. So those are multiple mechanisms in which racism can each cause poor health. So with that sort of as a level set, I'm gonna turn it to you, Amanda, and let me start and ask how bias and stigma Um, has been connected to outcomes for patients of color with mental health disorders.
1: Thank you so much, Monica. Um, And, you know, to be honest, um, in my practice and in my work, I don't use the words bias or stigma. And I'll talk a little bit about why. Um, They can be helpful terms. And I know, you know, different people use them. And um, I respect it. But for me, you know, I I don't use the terms of implicit and explicit bias because I like to focus on the person who's targeted and less yeah. on the aggressor. And so, in my mind, for me to talk about the differences between explicit and implicit racism or racist treatment, it's all explicit to the person who's targeted and. Okay. While I think it's important to talk about different levels of racism, so you know we can talk about structural racism, we can talk about everyday racism, which is what I use instead of actually the term microaggression, so sort of mm-hmm. the daily slights and cuts that um, black patients, um, you know, other minoritized patients experience. Um, I really like to talk about how racism affects mental health care. Um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, you mentioned a lot of the things in the, in the healthcare system at large. And I think the mental health care system is, is no different. You know, frankly, we see, I see very often differential treatment of black patients um, versus white patients, frankly, is what I see the most commonly. And Mm -hmm. as an example, you know, you can even look at the way the patients are described in charts. So I work with children, you know, um, these are little kids and not that it makes it better with an adult, but I work in an inpatient hospital setting. So parents of these children are trusting us as physicians, nurses, healthcare staff to be taking care of their children in a locked unit, right? So a lot of what goes on is confidential. The parents aren't aware of it. And I consistently see Black patients um, described in very demeaning, uh, with very violent terminology for the same behaviors as white patients. So for example, just as a brief example, let's say there's a white patient who punches a wall and a Black patient who punches the wall. Pretty common when kids get upset and dysregulated. The white child will often be described as struggling, in need of help, will, will receive a lot more compassion and empathy, mm-hmm. um, especially for predominantly white healthcare providers. The Black child will be labeled as violent, manipulative, problematic. And so I, I that has been something that's been very upsetting for me personally um and the other big thing is also and you mentioned sort of in the in the slide prescribing habits you know we see there's a long history uh you know that is very deep that we don't have time to go into but results in basically black children being more likely to be, and adults, being more likely to be prescribed antipsychotics versus antidepressants. And so when we think about that, we're talking about a black and a white patient who come in with comparable symptoms, right? So, you know, low mood, um, you know, lack of motivation, uh, maybe some anger, some irritability, and the white patient will be more likely to be viewed as depressed Mm-hmm. Um, started on antidepressant, whereas the Black patient is more likely to be viewed again as problematic, violent. Let's tame this behavior. And I say tame in a very degrading way on purpose with an antipsychotic. Yes. Antipsychotics are important. I use them, but I have a big problem with the fact that I am consistently seeing this differential treatment. And so those are some examples I think of how um, they play out. And another big thing you do mention in the slide is just, you know, this. Thing we do in healthcare and in mental healthcare, where we're still equating race with biology. And if you look at a lot of research papers, you can easily see this, you know, you'll see a paper that describes, you know, differences in the way that patients respond to medications. And when you look at it, they'll compare black and white patients when that's very problematic because you're essentially taking the way that someone identifies Um, or the way you identify them, frankly, because sometimes researchers aren't even asking patients how they identify, right? So for example, looking at a person like me, depending on the person who looks at me, I could be from many different places in the world, right? right? I'm I'm a light brown woman. So Mm -hmm. I may be 50% European descent, 50% African descent. But if you look at me and call me black, I'm going in the pot of this is how black people respond to medication. So just racism. I mean, race does not track to ancestry, but this idea that race and ancestry are equivalent and race is biological is very much a racist mindset. So those are some of the things in which um, I think t- that are important
0: to bring up, but there's so much more to delve into. Yes, there is. And you said so much. And one of the things that I want to make sure that our audience understands on your last point is that race is not biological, but racism causes biological changes. And so race is a social construct, but it's the exposure to racism because of race that can change your biology. Yes. Um, and can result in health outcomes that are different. And so that is what um, is that, that the message that we want to be consistent with um, and and have people understand that, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing about my brown skin that should put me at increase for heart disease. It is the fact that people react to my brown skin in such a way that I have life experiences that then put me at increased risk for heart disease. Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, another thing that you, when you're talking about how um, even children were described in such a violent way, I had co-authored a paper that came out last year and just made like, this huge splash. And for us, it was like, of course, um, but we looked at the medical charts of adult patients that were coming into our hospital. Um, and it turns out uh, that people who were black were two and a half more times to have negative descriptors like aggressive or, you know, whatever uh, than white patients. And that is something that, you know, we have noticed as individual physicians. But I was uh, shocked actually by how much press that got, by how sort of amazed people were by that finding. And these were people who were coming into the general internal medicine service for medical problems. So if you imagine that they're going into a psychiatric facility for um, things that are much more subjective, um, where it's their behavior specifically that's being analyzed, that this tendency to rely on your um, subjective assumptions and impressions of people that though, that, that difference that two and a half times would be much, much higher.
1: Mm -hmm. Very good point. I think I read that study. Actually. I think I cited it. It was was an amazing study. (laughs) Thank you.
0: (laughs) All right. So Jessica, I'm going to bring you into the conversation and ask you, um, what do you think about all of this and how it impacts patient engagement? And prescribing habits and what should providers be considering to do um, to address some of these barriers?
2: Yeah, I appreciate that mention of subjectivity because one of the ways that I conceptualize the consequences of how we're socialized into making meaning of our uh racial category and also of others um, is 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 distortion. That's one yeah. of the um, so there's a distortion of our, of our subjective experiences and the lens through which we view the environment around us. And one of the challenges with healthcare professionals specifically is this felt sense that we're egalitarian, that we are immune from being impacted by the socializations that we've been exposed to. And that's a part of that surprise, that shock, which really represents denial about our racial reality. Um, the same thing comes up in, in our interactions with patients. There's a really good paper from Zescott that has a complex image that distills this conversation into checkpoints. Um, And I'll I'll walk through the image. Essentially, when a a patient enters into a healthcare professional space, uh, the healthcare professional is looking at that patient and drawing conclusions, both at a conscious and unconscious level. And they're using those conclusions, using that data, again, determined by their subjectivity, um, to say, this is how I'm gonna present myself in this encounter with this patient. Um, I'll give an example of this. Uh, in real life. So I I have a patient who comes into the office. I'm looking at them, what they're wearing. I might be looking at how their hair is styled. I might be looking at their manner of speech. Um, There might be clues that come up in the chart that prime me to have an expectation, and I might prepare myself to tailor my interaction based on conclusions or assumptions I draw about that data, which means I might be prepared to speak more or speak less, I might prepare myself to have a defensive posture um, because there might be some really stigmatizing language in the chart about how aggressive they might be, all these sorts of things. And then from there, there's a relationship, there's a dance between me and the patient in that clinical encounter, and there's things happening for both of us. So I'm eliciting data, I'm formulating it, I'm coming up with a treatment plan, the patient is experiencing me. (laughs) in this encounter. And they're making use of the data they observe to decide how they're going to show up and interact with me. So one of the downsides uh, or one of the consequences downstream of how I show up for patients is they may show up for me in ways that hamper their participation in the encounter. So um, if they're uh, concerned about me, in like a stereotype threat sense thinking that they're not intelligent. If they're concerned about me, um, you know, being the paternalistic person that they're used to, they may be less likely to ask questions, they may be less likely to double check things that are said, etc. So I really think it's important that patient engagement conversation to consider the dance and how much we as healthcare professionals are responsible for leading in a way that acknowledges that there is a power dynamic, but also that it should be a dance where two people tango together um, to ensure that good data is collected, we generate a formulation that's at least as accurate as possible, and then a treatment plan that honors that we're sitting across from a human being. Um, So those are some things that come to mind for me uh, in working with patients. Um, I'm
0: going to jump in before you move to the next thing. This is so exciting for me um, because this idea of shared decision-making this dance between patients and providers around power is um, one of my core areas of research um, and how uh, that dance differs for people who have been marginalized, particularly by race than for those who have not. And so part of what I do is to develop interventions to help teach um, black people how to do this dance, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and help um, healthcare providers understand um, the experience and the the lived experience and the the challenges and the barriers um, that we may have to participating in that dance. What we may be asking our patients to do, Mm -hmm. who have for, you know, generations may have learned and are still teaching our young boys, for example, how to interact with the police to survive. And so some of our survival strategies may be ones of deference to power. And so then they come into the another healthcare system, which may not have always treated us correctly. And we know that to be true. And then we're saying no 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 here you're supposed to ask questions and you know what you know do all these things. And this may not naturally be how our community um, in uh, vulnerable spaces interacts with power mm-hmm. in order to get out alive, <laughs> you know? And so we have to, you know, enter into that paradigm, the space to understand that racism has altered that dance for us mm-hmm. and that we are you know, making a calculus on what we say, how we say, what we do, Based on so many factors, all the ones that you just mentioned, and so thank you for for bringing that up, um, and how important it is not just for me as a primary care physician, but how you know doubly important that is in mental health, where there's not um, an EKG or you know a lot of these um, sort of evidence that we can look at together, but it really is all about a relationship.
2: Mm -hmm. And I'll say I work with majority uh, Black patients across the diaspora uh, in my clinical practice, and there's lots of different kinds of dances. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to a patient last week who dances quite well, and I love it. (laughs) They're they're asking questions, they're challenging information, they're forcing me to divulge my rationale Mm -hmm. in a way that I love. And I actually gave them positive feedback that they should consider writing a book to help others who actually are struggling with that dance to know that these are things that you can do. But I'll say a large part of my dance with patients is being explicit about what they should expect, not only for me, but also from other healthcare professionals. And it is a part of psychoeducation, mm-hmm. uh, letting people know transparently, this is what you can do in this dance with me. This is what you should do. Uh, and anyone yes. who's discouraging you from doing that is problematic.
0: Yes. Yes, exactly. All right. Other, I had interrupted you. Um, Anything else that you want to add? Yeah, I think a stance of
2: uh, humility is really important for patient engagement. They're always teaching me things. And of course, there's my lived experience that informs what I do. But a lot of what I do now has integrated what I've learned. So for example, in conversations around prescribing medication, or even suggesting a next step as an intervention, there's how I experience it, and there's how they experience it. So things like um, we're gonna try Prozac, right? Even the word "try" right. is loaded.
0: <laughs> uh, are you experimenting? Am I, Have you done this before?
2: Eh, right, and then also, it, people's experience of shared decision making will vary. So I've learned to be transparent about why I am doing what I'm doing. Some people will say, "Dr. Isom, I mean, you're the expert. Why are you asking me what I want?" And Think then other
0: medical school. Right. <laughs> I'm
2: like, okay, okay. I get it. And then other people will say, you know what? I think I want to, I think I want to tweak my search early, my Zoloft this week. I've noticed this, this, and that. And on the inside, I'm like, oh my God, this is so great that you feel engaged enough um, in this shared decision-making enough that you can suggest a change on your own. So I've learned a lot just from working with patients and kind of integrating that along the way.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And I would say I do the same thing. Um, Amanda, I'll just ask if you that's part of your practice too that, that sort of learn behavior of having to sort of the preamble as we introduce new therapies or new medications um, to patients.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'm often dealing with the child as well as the parents. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of (laughs) there are multiple people in this dance for me because it's my first interaction is usually with the child. Right. And then we are developing a therapeutic relationship. And then I may call the parents and there's a whole nother dynamic of the parents and how they play into it. And so I definitely agree with um, Jessica in that. I really try my best to let the patients and their parents know that this is a shared decision-making process. Like we're partners in this, this is your health. And I usually like to describe myself as a guide. However, Mm -hmm. I want them to know that they can ask me questions. They can question things. And if something doesn't feel right, we can talk about it. And I Mm -hmm. often, you know, some of my favorite actually child patients are what people will call the difficult patients. Mm -hmm. And these would be the kids who are very externalizing, right? They're the ones, like I said, punching the wall, screaming, um, you know, maybe calm in the hospital, but at home, sort of out of control. So especially I find for kids like these, who often are trying to find a sense of control because they have their life feels out of control, Mm -hmm. giving them some control is very helpful to sort of say, Mm -hmm. hey, what do you think? You know, we have this as needed medicine, you know, that you're supposed to take. Um, You can take it twice a day. Do you want to take it now? Do you want to take it later? Even small things like that, allowing the child to make the decision about when they take their medicines, um, if it's an as needed medicine or, hey, you're taking this medicine in the morning, but you're telling me you're feeling really tired what do you think about taking it at night? What do you want to do? You know, and I often do find similar to what Jessica said, some patients are like, they, they're, they're on it and they very much like that and, and, and are very advanced and sort of share decision-making. And some patients are like, well, what do you mean? What I, what do you want me to do? You know? And I kind (laughs) of like, then go back to explaining, yeah, I can give you my recommendation, but you know, what you want and what you feel is also important in this. And I find that's really, really helpful. Not only mm-hmm. the children, but also parents.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is a great conversation. Um, thank you ladies. Uh, cause so much of your experience mirrors my own. And I think partially because as an internist, you know, a lot of what we do is very basic, um, Psychiatry, you know, we do a lot of the primary stuff before it really, you know, becomes complicated, Um, particularly for racialized minorities who um, have a lot, still have a lot of reservation about seeking mental health professionally. I want to talk a bit about the cost of medications. Many medications are expensive, um, including ones for mental health. And um, so how do we get the medications um, to our patients that they need? How do we bring up issues of cost? Um, Jessica, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss this to you first.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I, so I'll say I come from a, a lived experience of not having a lot. Um, so a part of what what informs my approach to any conversation about something associated with cost is sometimes people just don't have it. I've experienced that. So that's a, I want to be transparent about that as a part of why I, I just kind of from that basis approach the conversation in that way, but also statistically we know um, folks are differently insured in a a racialized way. Um, How you're insured can determine what access you have as far as what's on formulary and what's not and how much a fight it might take to get you access to something that's, for example, not on formulary and requires a prior authorization. There's also differences in life. Um, So I have patients who I know if I prescribe something on January 1st, they may not get it until January 29th because they couldn't get a ride or their check has not come in yet, or they forgot because they have uh, multiple responsibilities, multiple jobs, and it just wasn't on their list. So all this kind of goes into a conversation with them that's not, um, that's kind of, you know, casual, informal, relational, like, (laughs) for example, um, do you think you'll be able to go pick up your medication today? You know, or when do you think you'll be able to go pick it up? Um, uh, have you had any trouble recently with picking up your medication from the pharmacy? You know, what's the copay like? Or even have you had trouble coming to these appointments? I've heard patients say co-pays are like $150, depending on insurance. Um, so just in a really casual, normalizing way, also validating way, acknowledging yes. that there are social determinants that might affect your ability to you know, enact the treatment plan and cost as well. And I hand out lots of coupons um, for folks too, so like goodrx.com, yes. So again, you know, kind of position us together as trying to get you access to this intervention, as opposed to you go out there and figure it for yourself. So- a lot of this is around um, collaboration uh, or centered on collaboration because of the way the healthcare system is structured. So I can write that prescription, but then the pharmacist has responsibility for one part and the insurance company has responsibility for another part. And we're often not supporting that patient and figuring out even what their next steps are. Mm-hmm. So I often say in a very maternalistic way if you have trouble let me know don't rely on the insurance company to let me know don't rely on the pharmacist or the pharmacy to let me know you got to kind of keep me in the loop Mm -hmm. the last thing i'll say with that is technology allows some folks to be able to navigate those situations better than others so my patients that have my chart and are engaged in my chart are much more successful at advocating for themselves And navigating those barriers than those who do not, who are relying on phone calls to call centers with delays and things of that nature. So one practical suggestion would be is supporting patients that have technology access and helping them with that process, but paying attention to those who have to rely on other means to get in contact with the health center or their pharmacy.
0: Yeah, exactly. Excellent points. Amanda, do you have any, any other tips that you use when you're talking to patients about costs and how you bring that up? I love uh, Jessica that you had said that you normalize things. Um, And so for me, I think a lot, I manage a lot of patients with diabetes. So I'm always normalizing a lot of things that people may otherwise not want to tell me about what they're eating, what they're doing, what they're not doing, their medication adherence, all of these things. Like this is hard every day. You've got to think about 15 things that are related to your diabetes. And most days something's going to drop. So like, what's going on, you know? Mm -hmm. So any other tips um, you have, Amanda?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because you know hearing the outpatient perspective is 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 really uh, interesting because mostly, like I said, I'm in the I'm on the inpatient side, and so I think what I try to do is be very um, mindful again of how I'm describing patients in the chart. And to go back to the chart, I think there's a real lack of um, thinking about the patient as a person in the world, right? So if a patient comes in and they haven't been on medicine and they decompensate, let's say. I often will see in the chart the patient is like non-compliant with medicine and just this idea of non-compliance which we know that is sort of a negative label is more likely to be you know thrown at black patients and also is just you know frankly classes because it's like just saying the patient isn't following the plan i'll change it i'll sort of say patient was struggling to get medications due to cost and i feel like that's a small thing i can do but then you know, when I go to d- discuss it with the team, that's a very different conversation of, right. oh, the patient is, keeps coming into the hospital, not because they just decided to stop their medicines, right? Because they wanted to, which that would be a separate discussion, mm-hmm. but because they were not able to access them or, you know, the patient was, tr- was you know, knew they were in crisis, was trying to see an, out, um, an outpatient therapist or psychiatrist. And they'll tell me, they told me it was a six month wait, my depression worsened. Then I became suicidal and started to think about ways to, you know, in my life. And so Mm -hmm. I try to be very specific and mindful. And when I talk to patients, even in my brief interaction inpatient, try to, you know, basically normalize it similar to what Jessica said, but then also carry that into the chart and into my communications with the team. Hey, let's not label this patient as just a patient that doesn't want to take their medicine, which by the way, they're an adult or, you know, they're a person and they can decide to take their medicine. We should also delve into why they decided not to take it, but also some patients want to take their medicines. It's just, they don't, they don't have the ability to, because of, you know, lack of funding or lack of transportation or lack of being able to find an outpatient psychiatrist or therapist. I think I just try to be very mindful of that Mm -hmm. and very um, sort of push back against just the patient's noncompliant.
0: Right. We see the end result, and that's what goes into the chart and not all of the factors that led to the result. Yes. So can you talk to us about some of the resources that are there for patients to, you know, address some of these things along the way so that they don't get to the end result of not being able to take their medications or not being able to to get in to see a provider? What resources are available for mental health care for patients in the community? So
1: it's, it's difficult because like I said, the system is so clunky and difficult to navigate, but some of the resources that I really like, so NIMH, um, so, so I should say, I also really like resources that empower patients, like what we were talking about to um, advocate for themselves. And that's not to say that, you know, the racism in the mental health system is like the patient's fault. no it's you know, the fault of the healthcare providers and racism and the history of racism in this country. However, we do know that um, being able to advocate for yourself, ask for help, will help with patient outcomes. And just knowing when something doesn't feel right, your ability to say, I don't like this psychiatrist or this therapist, I don't feel like they're treating me well. And I think the elephant in the room is, we say black people and black children are less likely to access mental health care, but I see, all of the black children and adults who do access mental health care and are alienated by a racist system and racist therapists and psychiatrists. They'll tell me all the time. I was looking on these resources. I was trying to find a therapist. And when I started talking to them, you know, I had a black patient specifically who told me he was depressed. He went in and talked to a therapist and the therapist upon first meeting asked him, did you grow up in the hood?
2: No. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Right. So like these are very disturbing interactions that black patients are having with therapists and psychiatrists and they don't really know who to talk to about it and they just fall out of care. So that's just an example. So some of the resources that I like to offer are there's for, for black girls, obviously, cause I work with kids, there's therapy for black girls. Um, it does have resources of like providers and also just sort of tips and things to kind of look out for. It also helps talk about the importance of, you know, being a black girl and your identity as a black girl and, and therapy. I also really actually like, um, CDC has some really good, um, sort of health equity resources for even just communication between patient and provider. And then also SAMHSA has actually come out with a lot of really, really good tools actually not just for patients, but also for providers to be able to kind of look at their own practice and have resources of how do I talk to patients in a way that is going to work towards achieving equity rather than perpetuating racism. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are some examples. And I really, really like those resources. SAMHSA also um, has a lot of really important resources on the rising rates of Black youth suicide, which um, is a crisis that has really been minimized and not talked about as much as it should. Um, So SAMHSA, NIMH, CDC, um, those are some really, really good um, resources that both patients actually and providers can access for for getting tips about how to navigate this healthcare
0: system. Excellent, excellent. So if you you both could think about um, a personal experience that was particularly moving to you with a patient, Maybe one that had a positive outcome. Maybe <laughs> I'm saying a good, a good moving
1: or bad moving experience,
0: you know. And on a light note, um, <laughs> but either um, one that was illuminating uh, to the con- or relevant to the conversation that we're having right now. Um, that you could share with the audience um, to help them sort of understand these issues uh, as a as a take home. I think that. Um, the stories are always important and I am so grateful to the both of you because I think that, um, this conversation has been, you know, filled with information, um, and things to do and tips and, but also the stories that we've been telling, I think will be, um, really helpful for, for, uh, practicing, uh, clinicians and those who are listening. But um, so I'm going to ask each of you to, uh, to think of, you know, um, a patient or a family that has been um, that really just kind of stands out to you uh, as they have been trying to navigate their way in the mental health care system? And maybe uh, Jessica, I'll bounce to you first.
2: Yeah. So I'll, I'll, there's lots of stories. Um, I'll say first, uh, another resource would be from the joint commission. It's called speak up specifically tailored to Uh, users of health services to to help them know their rights Mm -hmm. uh, and specifically know how to what they should expect in healthcare environments. So Jayco would speak up. There's a patient who I met who was in his early 30s, black man, um, who'd been working with therapists at um, my clinic and then had begun to establish a relationship with psychiatrists. Uh, It is an example of someone who was not served in their youth Uh, because they've gone uh, through their life with diagnoses of depression, PTSD, but not been diagnosed with ADHD. Mm -hmm. Um, So I walk into my clinical practice, not just knowing what disparities exist diagnostically, but incorporating that knowledge into what I do. Um, So for my patients who are mostly again, black, I'm thinking about what everything could be. So not just schizophrenia, but OCD and ADHD, like we got, we got them all. Um, So I diagnose them with ADHD prescribed a stimulant, transformative, you know, improved his relationship with his children, his relationship with his partner, um, helped him to better understand himself and some of his um, shortcomings in a way that was more compassionate. But the interesting part about this is, is I was going at the time pre-pandemic to this um, restaurant down the street from the clinic to get one of my favorite meals before the restaurant closed, which was catfish and potato salad. (laughs) And I'm standing in this uh, lobby area, and this woman is like, hey, hey, are you Dr. Isom? And I was like, yes, I'm Dr. Isom. (laughs) And she's like, oh, you know, you've been taking care of my son, you know, and she expressed thank you to me uh, for doing that. And what I knew from her son was that she'd actually discouraged him from coming to see psychiatry, because she was worried about how he would be treated and worried that, that mistreatment could result in consequences for him and his health. So that for me was this like community psychiatry moment of like, it's not just me um, or just the patient that I'm treating, it's also their family. They're observing the kind of experience this patient has with me. Maybe it will shape how she navigates in the future, her relationship with services, but um, it was just a beautiful moment of like connecting with different pieces of the puzzle. So.
0: Yes, that is a beautiful ending because as his mother she's going to have so many so much influence over so many other members of the family so not just what she does but what her other kids do you know and i am and she's got that restaurant how many people are coming into that restaurant for food that she's going to be giving out free medical advice to <laughs> do you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so she is like a node in the community and so you changing her mind has potentially changed an entire community mm-hmm. So important. One patient. It really is. It really is. You, you just never know. All right, Amanda, can you top that?
1: <laughs> so mine is like a little bit of a spin because it's kind of like negative at the beginning, but it gets better. Okay. So um I was um in the hospital um and uh was approached by so I was, I was there doing like admissions to help sort of the on-call physician that was there. So I wasn't technically the psychiatrist on call that was fielding all the calls, um, but I was just there to help out with admissions because we had a lot of admissions. So um, a white nurse called me over and um, first of all, she was quite rude in the way that she called me over. And so I already was kind of like, okay, this is going to be an interesting um conversation because she just walked up to me and started talking. And I said, oh, hello, you know, I'm Dr. Calhoun. I'm Amanda. I'm the resident on tonight. What's your name? And she kind of screamed her name. And I was like, okay. She's like, can you go see this patient? Um, She's been complaining all day and I'm just really tired of hearing it. And, you know, she's just been complaining. You just go see her. And that's just the way she talked. Mind you, this is a child. Um, So I said, sure, I'll go, I'll go see the patient. Um, So I went in to see this child. This was a little black child, uh, curled up in a ball, under blankets, shivering. And I walked up to the child and I recognized them because I had seen them before in the hospital. And I said, "Um, what's going on? Um, And the child told me that they were in a lot of pain. I also knew that this, and the nurse knew as well, this child had sickle cell. And I said, what is your pain really high right now? Because I know that you live at a high level of pain, but where are you, where's your pain? And you know, she said probably an eight or nine. And I said, that sounds too high. She said, well, I've been trying to take a hot shower, do everything I can, but I really don't wanna go to the emergency department because we have to transfer them out of the inpatient psychiatric unit. Um, So I said, I think you probably do need to go. So I went and talked to my colleague who happened to be a white woman and was the person on call, right? And so I said, you know, you can do whatever you wanna do. You're the person on call, but there's a child up there who I really think you need to see. And if I were you, I would send that child to the emergency department. And so my white colleague goes up, talks to this white nurse who again, rolls her eyes, says, I think the child is faking her pain. I don't think this is real. Um, And then I'm laughing because my white colleague comes back downstairs and she goes, Amanda, this is exactly what you've been talking about with black patients and white providers saying they're faking their pain. This is it. And I said, yeah. This is what we're talking about. So she sent that child to the emergency department. That child ended up being admitted. She was in a sickle cell crisis. Mm -hmm. And we reported that nurse. Mm -hmm. But to me, that was a win because my colleague was able to listen, learn, and incorporate what I had been talking about and what so many other people have been talking about who are experts in this and make a change in a child's life, right? right? And so it was one child, one instance, she called the child's mom who was so happy that you know she had someone looking out for her. And so for <laughs> me, it was a huge win because it's like, wow, people are listening to these things that we're saying and they are helping. And something that we may think we're saying over and over again, we're reaching right. different people. And to me, that was a win that we got the child the care that she needed because had she just gone by what the nurse said, the child would have just stayed there in a sickle cell crisis without further intervention. So I I like telling that story because it lets people know how real racism is currently and how common it is, but also the fact that you as a white person, as a black person, however you identify can be part of the change. You don't have to continue perpetuating that you can take the conservative safe approach and say, hmm. I'm going to send this child to the emergency department. They're telling me they're in pain. We're going to check them out. And so that's that's my story that I really like to share.
0: Well, you did uh, equal Jessica's story because basically you converted someone else. And so for, <laughs> exactly. so for her to be like, girl, <laughs> yes. all that stuff you've been talking about, that really does happen. You know, so, and for her to see it with her own eyes made a believer out of her. So Mm -hmm. now she is not only changing her practice, but I bet you, um, because white people who are listening, you have, you know, access to see and hear things that we will not. Mm -hmm. And you have the ability to do something about it right then and there to be upstanders, um, we where persons of color aren't even in the room, you know, and so uh, the ability to to act um, to to do the right thing for your patients, um, your reach potentially is much vaster than ours because we only see a, a fraction of what you know is happening that's bad that we can potentially sort of you know try and address right then, and so when you have people um, who see it and then understand it and then start you know, talking to their colleagues about it, you know, that's real change right there. So those are both excellent stories. Yay. (laughs) Thank you both for sharing. I'm so excited. This has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda and Jessica for that discussion. I learned a lot. I always do. And I'm sure our audience did as well. So I'm going to try and summarize our discussion into action items that we can all do to provide more equitable mental health care. So they are to discuss potential barriers to accessing follow-up care and treatments with every patient before the treatment planning begins, try and normalize those things so that people don't feel ashamed to talk about them. So they understand that those are real barriers that real people have that they may be having as well. To assess and address inequities experienced by each patient during the uh, assessment and treatment planning processes, including unconscious bias, prior healthcare experience, social determinants of health, age of onset of mental health difficulties, occupation, comorbidities, and health literacy, all of these things that can impact someone's mental health. Try and really be thorough and not just thinking about comorbid diseases, but comorbid life experiences that can impact how they present. Um, and and their their treatment arc. Educate patients on their condition and their available treatment options. We want patients to be activated as well, asking questions and learning about their disease. And so they can be partners with us. Um, and we want to have cultural humility and language congruency to minimize the disparities in mental health care and to promote health literacy. And then last, you share decision-making practices with patients so we can develop holistic Individualized treatment plans with relevant community resources for each patient. So, I would like to thank again Dr. Calhoun and Dr. Isom for joining me here and to remind our audience that you can join me here for additional CMEO podcasts, live webinars, case discussions, and more. We have another upcoming CMEO briefcase for you. You can find out all about these upcoming live events and view previous ones at the DNI Hub at the link shown here. So here are just some of the topics we've covered so far, and we'll be adding new content every month. Please remember to collect credit for this activity by using the Apply for Credit button on your screen. Again, thank you all uh, for participating. Thank you to our faculty presenters for your input today. Um, And just thank you, everyone, for providing equitable and holistic care to patients around the globe. Have a wonderful day.